Hello and welcome to Johns Hopkins University, Baltimore, and listeners from around the world. I am Raymond Perez, and this is In Progress, the number one political radio show at the Johns Hopkins University, for now. It is probably Friday, May 21st, when you're watching this, I don't particularly know. But as usual, we don't have a theme song today because I am announcing sort of a change, I guess. In Progress is, for now, not associated with the Johns Hopkins University at the moment. Of course, the reason why being this is the summer, and this is, I guess, a summer edition of In Progress. So the reason why I decided to do a summer edition is probably maybe obvious to you, maybe it's not, so I'm just going to say it. Like, things are happening in the summer. And actually, for some reason, the summer is more interesting right now than, well, I guess not really. The fall was pretty interesting with the election and all that. But the summer was important last year, and we, of course, did not cover the summer last year. However, the summer this year seems as if it will be not just important, but also a sort of necessary thing to cover, just given all the different issues that are becoming, that are being put into play at this moment. So, of course, we have Israel-Palestine, which just, of, of course, which I did a 90-minute segment on, I think. I don't remember when I did it. Uh, I, I don't even know if, I, I believe I didn't release it, actually, which is, wow, that is upsetting and shocking. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't release it, but the issue is that Israel-Palestine is important, regardless of whether I released that or not. However, Israel-Palestine is extremely important right now. Of course, now you have a ceasefire, uh, and we'll get into that later. But right now you do have a lot of different issues. Israel-Palestine is one, as I mentioned. Infrastructure is another important thing that's occurring in the United States. And of course, you have uh, different countries that are not the United States and also that don't exist in the Middle East. You have the United Kingdom. You have um, the other countries where things are happening. I can't really think of any major ones right now. Oh, Colombia, for instance, which the major protests... You have Peru, which also has major protests. You have a variety of different other issues, um, like in China uh, and throughout the world. So, of course, we are going to have to do shows that are not just during um, the fall and spring semesters at Johns Hopkins, but during the summer when I am not affiliated with any school because we don't have programming at the time. Okay, so outside of that, I did want to discuss the things that we've missed for around two months. So some of you may or may not know that this show was off for two months in March and April. I call that the spring break. Um, and the reason why it was off was for a variety of reasons. Number one, I didn't really want to cover a lot of what was occurring. I thought that a lot of the coverage was generally, like my coverage would generally be similar to coverage of other, that other progressive media shows would give. And as a result, I don't really believe that I had anything to say. And of, and of course, this show, the primary reason that this show exists is to say things that other people are not saying. And of course, because I think every progressive had the same idea on the Derek Chauvin trial, or every progressive has the same idea on cancel culture in the sense that, oh, and that's not true. There's, a, there's actually kind of a divide on the progressive left with the cancel culture. But with a bunch of different issues, there were there was not really much I could say about it. So as a result, we just didn't do the show for two months. And also, of course, it was easier to not do the show than to actually do it. So that is another major thing that needs to be said. Okay, that being said, I realized that I was off for a bit too long because I did want to discuss a lot of the things that happened. The main thing that I really wanted to discuss was the United Kingdom local elections that occurred in 2021. Um, I believe they occurred May 6th, 
that like seems like a date that that it's that seems right. It occurred like around two months, two weeks ago, uh, because I know I was planning on covering it on the show that we were coming back on, which was May fourteenth. But then I realized, oh, that was finals week, so I didn't really want to come back at that time. So the United Kingdom local elections were pretty annoying if you're on the left in the sense that you sort of have the idea that the left is losing in the United Kingdom, which is a problem, of course, if you support progressive politics. And it tends to be that progressive politics uh, at least has an international flair that conservative politics does not, in the sense that, for instance, uh, many conservatives, many Republicans um, don't believe that conservative parties in Europe uh, have the same ideology as conservative parties in America, which is sometimes true. I, I would say I would say that the conservative parties in Europe tend to oppose uh, even many individualistic practices. They tend to actually support collectivism in a way that some Americans would oppose, even some Americans on the left would oppose. Because when I say on the left, I mean like center-left individuals. Because it tends to be that individualism is not a very ingrained portion of right-wing politics, or really politics generally, but uh, right-wing politics in Europe is just not something that happens. So for instance, you'll see in Germany, you'll see like the German right, like the, the Christian Democrats, as they're called, get criticism from the American right, but get moderate acceptance from the American left. So uh, like Angela Merkel is generally more popular among the left in this country than among the right. I'd probably bet that, even though Angela Merkel is fairly right-wing in the sense that she opposes gay marriage, uh, she or she opposed gay marriage. She supports Christianity in the sense that she believes that Christianity is a guiding principle of not just the CDU, but of Germany generally, and I'm sure you could make that argument. And uh, of course, she uh, supports police um, and generally is pro-family. So that tends to be more right-wing ideas, at least in the United States. But of course, the CDU does support some things in left-wing philosophy because it is collectivist and almost by definition it would. The social market economy, for instance, that the CDU claims to support is something that would probably be considered entirely left-wing in the United States. Uh, it's not necessarily an, an individualist economy that you would see in, uh, say, the Republican Party. So that is important to note because the CDU tends to be like one of these pretty, uh, pretty run-of-the-mill parties that are on the right in Europe. That being said, there is something to say on the United Kingdom, and that's what we're going to talk about right now. So the United Kingdom has a lot of different issues uh, that have affected it, but the most important one is Brexit. So Brexit has affected the United Kingdom in a variety of different ways. To be pretty clear, let me first talk about British politics more generally, and then we'll become more and more specific as I move in. So on the most generic, the United Kingdom, like most democracies, especially most democracies that are considered Anglo democracies and democracies founded from the United Kingdom, just like the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, a lot of democracies have two parties or two major parties at least. Uh, and those parties are a left-wing party and a right-wing party. So in the United States, of course, you have the Democrats and the Republicans, but in the United Kingdom, you have uh, the Conservative Party, which is of course on the right, and Labour, which is on the left. So there are other parties. Um, Unlike in the United States, you have something called regionalist parties, and they tend to be more important in other countries that have regions that want to secede. But here, of course, all you have is Calexit, uh, Calexit, I guess, and Texit, 
right, with California and Texas, but no one really seriously believes in that. But in the United Kingdom, you have parties that represent, for instance, a region. So Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, they have their own different parties, as well as the parties that the United Kingdom has uh, more broadly. But in some of these areas, you have regionalist parties like uh, the Scottish National Party or the SNP, uh, Plaid Cymru in Wales, and Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland, or the DUP, depending on who you're voting for in Northern Ireland. So you have a variety of different parties. They tend to be on the left. The DUP, as I mentioned, uh, is actually on the right wing, um, and they operate in Northern Ireland, but they are also called a unionist for a reason. They support union with uh, England rather than uh, secession from England, which Sinn Féin and a variety of other uh, regionalist parties like uh, the Scottish National Party, they support leaving the UK. And that's what secession means, of course. So basically, the left and the right in the United Kingdom are pretty fractious. However, there are still two major parties. And the first is uh, the Conservative Party, which controls Westminster, Westminster being the House of Commons and the House of Lords combined. But generally, the House of Lords is much less important than the House of Commons. We decided that in the 1600s with the uh, little thing called the English Civil War. But right now, at least, um, the House of Commons is more important. And as a result, the Conservatives control the House of Commons, so they control the Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister is, of course, uh, Boris Johnson. Now, Boris Johnson has had a very rocky um, ministry. Uh, ministry would be what, what we would call an administration in uh, the United States. So the Johnson ministry has dealt with not only Brexit, and they were the ones to actually do Brexit, uh, but also COVID-19, which really did sink the Donald Trump, for instance, in the United States. And it was generally mishandled by right-wing governments across the globe. For instance, the Bolsonaro government in Brazil, uh, the Modi government in India, as we're seeing right now, uh, it generally was handled incorrectly in many right-wing governments. Although I do say that, but there are some right-wing governments that handled it fairly well. Uh, some people may not like me saying this, but Likud in Israel, at least for Israelis, handled it well. You could say something else about Palestinians, and we'll probably get to that when we get to Israel-Palestine. But uh, And also the Merkel government in Germany handled it fairly well. But generally, around the world, right-wing governments like Brazil, India, the United States did not handle it well. Uh, Boris Johnson, it really depends on what you think. Johnson probably is more on the side of handled it well as compared to other right-wing governments. So that can be said for Johnson, although I would say that Johnson uh, definitely handled it not as well as was possible. Like his American counterpart, he did get COVID-19. He did contract it. I believe he got hospitalized. But outside of that, I'm not particularly sure how bad it was in Great Britain. I think there was a lot, there were a lot of lockdowns in Great Britain. And there were a lot of issues relating to the British variant. I forget the name of it, but there was a British variant that was supposedly more, more contagious, I will say, than the, the worldwide variant. So that is, of course, an issue. Britain also had some problems with the vaccine, but we're seeing that be alleviated with, you know, the speed up of vaccines around the world, not just in the United Kingdom. And what you also have to say about the Johnson ministry is that Boris Johnson himself was generally good electorally for the Conservative Party in a way that his predecessors were not. So to very quickly discuss his predecessors, you have David Cameron, who ruled from ruled, who was prime minister from 2010 to 2015. He very famously had sex with a pig, probably. Actually, I think definitely. Uh, and well, OK, to be very clear, that pig was dead. 
Okay, that doesn't make it much better. But regardless, you, you did have David Cameron, who's a little bit uh, out there. Well, he actually was out there, like, probably not even personally. I, I, I don't even know whether he was out there uh, generally. But th- he was more of a moderate conservative, to be very clear. And he also had more of a moderate personality, other than, you know, having sex with a pig. But he wasn't very interesting. And as a result, he kind of was just there. Uh, he was very famously called Dodgy Dave by a Labour MP, MP being member of Parliament. I don't particularly remember what happened to him other than him just like completely falling apart after calling the uh, Brexit referendum. I don't remember what happened to him after he resigned as PM. Uh, by the way, he was anti-Brexit. He called the Brexit referendum as a result of much discussion in Great Britain. He called the Brexit referendum. It eventually, of course, goes to leave. And since he's a Remainer, um, he resigns. So he resigns uh, and the party goes to Theresa May, who is also not very well liked, especially not in the British media. But uh, Theresa May barely holds on to a, to a, actually, she loses a majority, but she barely holds on to her prime ministership by forming a coalition with the DUP. I mentioned them earlier. It's not particularly important what they are, other than the fact that they are a regionalist party and they support Northern Ireland being part of the United Kingdom. So Theresa May was moderately conservative as well, but she was also a, a Remainer. However, as a Remainer, she kind of switched to leave after um, after Brexit passed, and she basically said that she would do Brexit. However, she was kind of flip-flopping on Brexit. Her Brexit deal was particularly unpopular, and it led to a discussion of something called a second referendum. So the idea was in British politics that the first referendum was filled with lies, and that's of course true. And the and the fact is that many British people voted for, to leave without really knowing what leaving meant, and it seemed to be more of a knee-jerk reaction. So many on the left decided to say maybe we should revote on that thing, and that kind of seemed like they were sour grapes because, frankly, a lot of them were. And it turned out to be that many people who wanted Brexit eventually voted against the Remainers in Labour and the Lib Dems. Uh, so there's like a lot of different things that happened here. But specifically, Labour sort of waffled on Brexit, Labour being the left-wing party, as I mentioned. And uh, and this sort of Brexit problem that really en- engrossed British politics throughout 2019, uh, it became even more important when Theresa May tried to get her Brexit deal passed and it just completely failed. Uh, so she resigns and Boris Johnson becomes um, the prime minister after a very contentious election. Uh, Boris Johnson does win, I believe, in a, in a pretty large margin, but I can't remember precisely how much he won by. Uh, Boris Johnson, who is sometimes called the British Trump, I think John Oliver very famously called him that. Um, but the other kind of silly thing, I think I mentioned this in a different video, uh, or a different podcast. I think that calling someone another country's Trump is kind of stupid and lazy. And Boris Johnson is not really British Trump. If you ever look at a picture of him, he looks like Britain's Trump, so it, you can get that impression. But the real issue is that Boris Johnson is not really that uh, that stupid. I, I, I think you can say that. I think you can say that Trump is kind of an idiot. Uh, not even kind of. I, I can say that Trump is really, really dumb. But outside of that, uh, Boris Johnson was... It's kind of a shrewd political figure. He sort of puts out this persona as if he is sort of stupid and sort of doddering, but he's not. And he did sort of prove that in 2019 with the election uh, against uh, Jeremy Corbyn. So now that I mentioned Jeremy Corbyn's name, I do have to kind of flip 
and now discuss the left wing uh, uh, in British politics. So the left wing in British politics has been sort of neutered in in the recent leadership election, but before that, it was actually pretty strong. Um, so Jeremy Corbyn, who I believe took the reins from Ed Miliband in 2015. Now Ed Miliband is kind of an interesting character in himself. Uh, he, I think he was Jewish. I actually, I believe he was Jewish. And, um, that was kind of a problem for some people. But the other thing is that he also ate sandwiches weirdly. He ate a bacon sandwich that went all over the press and Miliband was then like excoriated. Uh, and he basically got destroyed. Uh, so then you had Jeremy Corbyn take the reins from Ed Miliband in 2015. And he was extremely far left in the sense that he was literally a socialist and a socialist in, in a real way. So, for instance, Labour tends to call itself socialist, but it's not necessarily normally a socialist uh, party in the sense that socialism means something different than social democracy. I'm not going to get into that now, but the Labour Party calls itself a socialist party, but it really means social democrat. Now, social democrats are more moderate than socialists, so just know that. Now, the other issue is that someone like Tony Blair, who was uh, who was the first major prime minister of labor in a very long time, and he was, I guess you can call him the Bill Clinton of labor in the sense that he, just like Bill Clinton did to the Democratic Party, he sort of took the left party and brought it to the center. Now, this happened with a lot of democracies in the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s, where the left-wing party, uh, in a... Res- in a um, attempt to get more moderate voters, uh, just decided to move to the center, um, in order to sort of, it was called a, it was called triangulation, especially when Bill Clinton did it. Uh, they moved to the center in order to, to get more voters that way because the, the Republican Party or the Conservative Party had moved more to the right, uh, as a result of Thatcherism and, uh, Reaganism in, uh, in both countries. Now, regardless, it's important to note that, uh, Tony Blair was kind of, important to the Labour Party in the sense that, like, he revolutionized it. And I'm kind of talking it down because uh, right now, Blair's influence can't really be felt in the Labour Party. Uh, Corbyn, sort of, Corbyn and uh, Gordon Brown and these other uh, leaders of Labour really did transform Labour after Blair. Of course, not to the extent that Blair did, but uh, they continued moving the party more to the left after Blair had bought it uh, to the centre. So, Blair was also, by the way, a friend of George W. Bush's. So you kind of understand that Blair, who was a left-wing member of parliament and a left-wing prime minister, supposedly, uh, he was friends, of course, with the Republican Party's figurehead in the 2000s. You begin to see that the Labour Party had sort of moved to the center. So that, again, begins to change, as I mentioned with Gordon Brown, who begins moving it a little bit further to the left uh, than Miliband. And then, of course, you have Jeremy Corbyn, who really does take it to the to, to the far-left extreme. Now, the important part about Corbyn is that he sort of deals with major issues with labor. Um, labor begins to be seen as an anti-Semitic party, uh, as a result of many different things. Um, Corbyn very famously met with Hamas, which was a problem for many Jews in Britain. Certain members of parliament said that Israel should be destroyed and sort of advocated the deportation of Israelis from Israel to the United States. That was an issue, of course, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, the main one being that, you know, that's ethnic cleansing, which is, you know, a problem. Now, Jeremy Corbyn had to deal with anti-Semitism in the, in the Labour Party because there was so much discussion of it in the media. And also, it comes to the fact that Corbyn was kind of unpopular with the media, uh, they really did not like him. The the other important thing is that Corbyn wasn't extremely 
pro-Remain as many Labour members wanted him to be, because, you know, Labour tended to be uh, the party of people who wanted to remain in the sense that Labour, a large faction of Labour, at least, had been middle-class white people who actually wanted to remain in the United Kingdom, uh, sorry, remain in the European Union. Now, these individuals decided to leave labor to for the liberal democrats or for something else like the independent group uh or some other political parties because they thought that corbyn was not taking a stance on brexit that was particularly interesting to them because they were remain and jeremy corbyn had sort of waffled on brexit and then the other thing is that uh jeremy corbyn after after brexit had passed jeremy corbyn's brexit plan was not very existent uh just to, to say a word now, okay, that's an important thing to note because Corbyn's sort of waffling on Brexit cost him votes on both sides. And in 2019, uh, a variety of different issues, primarily Brexit, but also uh, anti-Semitism and other issues, basically destroyed the Labour campaign. Um, and Corbyn lost by a very large margin, the largest margin in like 50 years, I think. So... Corbyn had lost, and the issue became who would succeed him, and it seemed like there were two candidates to succeed him. Uh, one was Rebecca Long-Bailey, who was Corbyn's successor, um, or, or supposedly Corbyn's appointed successor, and uh, Keir Starmer, who was more moderate uh, as compared to uh, Long-Bailey, but she, but, but, but she was, uh, she being Long-Bailey, she was more far left than Starmer, but Starmer was more boring than uh, RLB, as she's mostly called in Britain. So Starmer eventually wins that election. I don't remember how close it was. I don't think it was particularly close. Uh, but Starmer still... I, I think Starmer was um, one of the members of Labour who resigned from the Shadow Cabinet, but I can't remember. Uh, anyway, that's unimportant, especially if you don't know what that means. Um, so Keir Starmer eventually uh, did many things. But the major thing that he did was he kind of purged the left from the Labour Party. Now, I say that, but that is kind of controversial to say among uh, some people. But um, Starmer, basically, he kicks out Long Bailey. Um, he, he, like, removes her from from her position in Labour. I think he also removes Jeremy Corbyn, who was, as you mentioned, was a past leader of Labour, who was even more to the left uh, than Labour had generally been. So Starmer had a sort of fractured party. And moving into, into 2021, um, with a mostly fine COVID response on the part of Boris Johnson, you eventually saw a major defeat for Labour in the 2021 elections that occurred uh, just two weeks ago. Now, the most major part of that election was Hartlepool, which is a constituency in the northeast of the United Kingdom. Um, sorry, northeast of England, uh, which is in the center of the United Kingdom, uh, because England is below Scotland, and when you say that something's in the northeast of England, it would, of course, be in the center of the, of the UK. So, so England has turned against Labour in a real sense, because, I say this because Hartlepool was a very strong Labour constituency, was part of the so-called Red Wall, which is sort of a mirror of the Blue Wall in American politics, which, of course, consisted of Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, which, of course, fell to Donald Trump in 2016. The Red Wall uh, is sort of these northern constituencies in England that generally vote Labour, but they also tend to be white working class, just like the Blue Wall in the United States. So 
This red wall eventually begins to be eroded by Boris Johnson in 2019, and it basically functionally collapses in 2021. So Labour had a really bad showing in those 2021 elections, and people are calling for Starmer to resign, and people are saying that Starmer didn't do enough. Uh, but Starmer is blaming Jeremy Corbyn, Starmer is blaming uh, basically anyone but himself. He, I believe, sacked a large part of the shadow cabinet. Uh, the shadow cabinet is basically in, in, in the United States, you know how you have a cabinet uh, and Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, um, Secretary of the Treasury, they're inside that cabinet. In the United Kingdom, it's kind of the same thing. You have the Chancellor of the Exchequer, you have the Home Secretary, the Foreign Secretary. Uh, but in the United Kingdom, um, there are two cabinets. One that the, uh, the, that, the, that the government has, the government being the majority party, um, which is the Conservatives right now. And then you have the Shadow Cabinet, which is uh, the cabinet that the minority party holds, uh, or that the opposition holds. And the opposition is uh, Labour right now. So Labour basically sacked the sh- parts of the Shadow Cabinet, and when I say that, I mean, of course, that many people in this cabinet that is not the real cabinet uh, got fired, which is not good if you're Keir Starmer, because it sort of seems as if, number one, it seems as if you don't know what you're doing if you hired them in the first place. And of course, it seems as if labor is in trouble, which it is. And then the third thing is that so many people said that he didn't need to do that because it wasn't that bad of a showing, although some people would argue that it was a bad showing. Um, that being said... There are some bright spots in terms of Labour's performance. Uh, in Wales, Labour won the biggest margin in history, although that's primarily because of the Labour leader uh, in Wales rather than the Labour leader in, in England, who was Keir Starmer. Um, and there were other good things that happened to Labour in Scotland. However, the SNP won uh, a... I believe they won a minority government. They didn't get a majority, which people were expecting them to. So as a result of them not getting majority, um, Labour sort of wins uh, because of that, because Labour is a uh, is a left-wing party, so is the SNP, but the SNP is a nationalist party uh, rather than a, a conciliatory party like uh, the Labour Party is. So what that means is that the SNP wants Scotland to be independent, but Scottish Labour, who is also left-wing, does not want Scotland to be independent. So Labour kind of wins when SNP loses, uh, because uh, the major question in Scottish politics is whether they are independent from the UK, in the same way that it used to be Brexit for the entire United Kingdom. So as a result, uh, Labour had a bad night in England, but not necessarily a bad night in uh, the other constituencies, um, sorry, the other constituent countries, which are Scotland and Wales, and the Northern Ireland. So normally I tend to introduce an article when I discuss this. I did have a New York Times article about Keir Starmer. I didn't really want to get into it because I would much rather discuss the entirety of British politics than discuss just what Keir Starmer did. Uh, because you might not know the entirety of British politics. And if you don't know that, then you wouldn't know uh, Keir Starmer. You wouldn't know why he did what he did and what he did and, and really what he did. And that article was about, of course, uh, Starmer sacking the shadow cabinet, which uh, occurred, I believe, on the 11th. So that is basically the entirety of what happened in British politics for 2021 in a nutshell. Um, okay, so with that, I think we should probably end the discussion of British politics, although... It is extremely interesting, and we should probably get into something else. Uh, so for this one, I think we should get into maybe Israel and Palestine, but I don't really know whether I want to do that. Uh, I have a list of things to get into, if I want to get into them, but um, Israel and Palestine seems like the best place to start. Uh, so Israel and Palestine, as I mentioned, was kind of an issue, if, if, I, can, if I can say that, if, if, you'll, if you'll grant me that. It was, you know, a little bit, a little bit of a problem, maybe, over the last uh, two weeks. So... I have an entire 90-minute video about the Israel-Palestine 
conflict. I recorded that, I believe, uh, when it was occurring. Um, right now, there is a ceasefire with the Israel-Palestine conflict, but I think it's so important to discuss what happened uh, and what we can do about it and uh, basically why it happened. I think that's extremely important. So, as I'm sure you know, Israel and Palestine have not been great friends over the past, I guess, 70 years. Uh, Israel has existed since 1948 as a country, but Israelis have existed in the area for um, probably around a century now, uh, since I believe 1897, I think was Herzl when he declared that sort of Zionist Congress. So 1897 around uh, to today, you have um, basically the Israeli people in Israel. Um, many of them came after 1920, but even more came after the Holocaust, to be extremely clear. Now, a lot of them are not native to the area. There, of course, are some Jews who are native to the area, but they tend to be of the Mizrahim rather than of the uh, Ashkenazim or of the uh, Sephardim, which are the two other types of Jews in um, in Jewish culture. I don't really know how to describe that. Um, the Mizrahi were the, the original... Uh, Palestinian Jews, they generally exist throughout the Middle East, but the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim are uh, the more common types of Jews uh, outside of the outside of the Middle East. Anyway, although now you have a lot more Ashkenazis in the Middle East, of course, because of Israel. Okay, uh, Israel has existed since around the 1890s, as I said, um, as, a, as a people, uh, but you have some Zionists who claim that the nation of Israel, as in Israel is a nation, uh, I mentioned this very, I didn't mention it briefly, I actually mentioned it for like 10 minutes on the Israel-Palestine conflict video that I released separately, uh, but Zionism and the Israeli identity and Jewish nationalism and all these very different ideas, uh, they really have a complex relationship that I can't get into, not only in a 90-minute video, but of course in this uh, probably 15-20 minute segment. So um, I will actually leave it there and say that there are Israelis in Israel. Really, really brave, actually, of a statement to make. Okay, so not only is Israel important, of course you have the other side, which is Palestine. Um, Palestine exists in two areas, the West Bank and uh, the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip is much worse off than the West Bank, but the West Bank isn't doing too hot, of course. Uh, to be very clear, Palestine, and I'm going to call it Palestine, although some people call it the Occupy Palestinian Territory, some people call it the Palestinian Territories, some people just call it the Occupation. I mean, there are a variety of different names to, to Palestine, but I would just say Palestine and uh, keep it at that. So Palestine has existed much longer than Israel. Uh, it's existed since around, like, I don't really know when, when a separate Palestinian Arab identity emerged, and perhaps the reason why is because that identity is relatively recent because it, that identity is sort of uh, negatively defined um, in, in the sense that uh, Palestinians have defined themselves as a result of Israeli occupation, as a result of uh, Israeli people um, who have come into the area and uh, obviously displaced them. Um, so Palestine has existed for a while, but to be very clear, and I do not want to, uh, I, I do not want to mince words here, but I am probably going to, uh, the... Palestinian, the Palestinian people, and I'm saying the Muslim population in Palestine has existed for around a millennium in the sense that Muslims in Palestine have existed since around uh, 700 AD and they became the majority in around 1200 AD. So they've existed for around a millennium now. However, of course, that doesn't mean that Palestinians in 1200 are the same as Palestinians today in the same way that doesn't make sense to say that the French in 1200 are the French today. Uh, of course, um, different nationalities, different ideas, different ideologies, they manifest 
differently throughout eras. I know that's probably shocking, but um, it really is true. Okay, so Israel and Palestine, there are two different belligerents, and we mentioned both of them. Of course, as I mentioned before, I will go into much more detail on Israel and Palestine in a different video, uh, and that one can probably be found if you just look up In Progress with Raymond Perez and you go to it. Uh, okay, so Israel and Palestine, of course, two belligerents, and there are now issues occurring in Israel and Palestine, and we'll discuss why that happened. Uh, so first, basically, um, Ramadan is, of course, a holiday in Islam. Uh, like many holidays, it's actually not one singular day. It lasts around a month. I think uh, probably a good, uh, a, a good like analog in Christianity would be Lent, uh, but I don't think a lot of people practice Lent anymore, uh, at least not in the United States. But Ramadan is important because you have a variety of different festivals. Um, there's a huge fast, or I think the entire thing is a fast actually, uh, except for the iftar meals. Um, there's a there's a fast known as Som, uh, Som. Perhaps there's a different way of pronouncing that, but I think it's some. Uh, and basically a lot of different festivals occur during that time. And a major one is Eid. There are many different Eids. And by the way, I sound like I'm being an a-hole when I say Eid. That is actually how I would pronounce it if I spoke Arabic. Although there is a battle stop in Eid, but I can't really mimic that because I'm not Arabic. Uh, regardless, Eid al-Fitr is the most major one in uh in in islam and ramadan is the sort of the lead up to eid in the sense that lent is a lead up to easter i think or i don't actually remember what 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 lent is um ironically i know more about islam than my own religion uh anyway lent and eid lent no lent and ramadan are simple are similar uh ash wednesday does that mean anything i, I don't know anyway the most important part to know is that Ramadan is extremely holy for Palestinians, especially uh, especially in Palestine. Um, it's also holy for all Muslims, but it's especially important in Palestine when you have, you know, Israel, uh, which is right across the border. So um, many things happened during Ramadan. There was a lot of different fighting that occurred during Ramadan. Both sides claimed the other side started it. There's not really a way for me to say um, who started it. I kind of think this is true. Uh, that it was begun by, um, the Israeli police squad that basically, uh, I don't want to say invaded, but, um, like moved in to the Temple Mount. I'm going to call it the Temple Mount. There is a different name in Arabic, but I call it the Temple Mount because I live in the United States. Uh, and they sort of like tried to get them to disperse in the Temple Mount. Now the issue is, of course, that the Temple Mount, uh, you know, is holy, and especially during Ramadan, uh, that's not necessarily a, a good thing to do. And of course, you saw protests that occurred as a result of that. Now, um, there were also uh, definite issues that, that occurred uh, in terms of fighting. Palestinians fought Israelis, Israelis fought Palestinians. Um, it was, I will say this, there was violence on both sides. That is true. Uh, and it's not necessarily wrong to say that, even though you may agree with one side or another, but it is legitimately true that there were, there was violence on both sides. Anyway, uh, what's most important to note is that much of that violence was not perpetrated by the military. Much of that violence was perpetrated by, uh, by some settlers on, on the Israeli side, some Palestinians on the Palestinian side, and also, uh, so a, a lot, a large portion of the police, which is important to note. Um, the police 
were instrumental in creating this new conflict, as they tend to be throughout the world. Okay, so basically, um, there was shooting. Some people died, which is uh, not great. So a 19-year-old Israeli died, a 16-year-old Palestinian died, um, some Palestinian children were killed. Uh, it's really questionable what happened and when it happened, but there were civilians killed on both sides. But more Palestinian civilians were killed generally. Okay, so there began to be a lot of other issues that, that, that occurred that sort of created this new crisis. Um, the major one being that Israel began to start the process to evict uh, certain Palestinians who lived on uh, on lands that Israeli settlers coveted. And that land, uh, and that's problematic, not only because that settlements have generally been opposed by every government, uh, because it generally tends to be considered against international law, but the fact is that settlements were sort of this red line that were drawn in the 1990s, uh, in the Oslo Accords, and um, in international law, as, as I just said. So even even administrations like the Reagan administration, the Bush administration, they oppose settlements. Uh, that began to sort of lift under the younger Bush. Uh, but even the younger Bush opposed um, a lot of Israeli attacks. And Obama, of course, although he was not uh, very anti-Israel, he was not extremely pro-Israel either. Uh, Netanyahu famously came to Congress and said that Obama was sort of letting Israel die, uh, hanging them out to dry. It was a, sort of an entirely silly thing. And um, kind of one of the major reasons that Israel has less support for the Democrats now is that Netanyahu sort of politicized the Israel-Palestine issue when, for um, the most part, it had been sort of part of the bipartisan consensus, which is something that is discussed in Washington as the... Places where the Democrats and the, and the Republicans agree, this bipartisan consensus uh, sort of included the idea that Israel was generally in the right and Palestine was generally in the wrong, um, perhaps because in the early 2000s you saw a lot of suicide bombings on behalf of Palestinians, which is sort of like peak terrorism, at least in the brains of many Washington uh, politicians. So, okay, there was a lot of destruction in terms of uh, settlements in, in Israel. Um, and the Israelis sort of uh, continued to antagonize the Palestinians by continuing to encroach on their land. Okay, the next important thing to note is that both sides have a political interest in continuing the conflict. Um, there are two sides to the conflict. I mentioned this extremely in-depth in my Israel-Palestine video, but I'm going to very briefly discuss what I, what I said in there. Uh, so Palestine and Israel um, are two separate nations, of course, and, uh, well, depending on who you ask, uh, but Palestine has two separate parties, and one of them is Hamas, and the other is Fatah. Now, Fatah is the more moderate of the two. Hamas is generally considered by the U.S. a terrorist organization, but also by other nations like the like the EU, I, not a nation, but like other organizations like the EU, uh, Canada, I believe, considered them a terrorist organization. Some, like the United Kingdom, only consider their military wing a terrorist organization, and uh, others just don't consider them terrorists at all, like China and Russia. Uh, but regardless, I live in the West, I'll use Western tech, uh, terminology here, and I will call Hamas, or at least its military wing, a sort of terrorist organization. Okay, so uh, the other important thing to note is that Fatah, which is uh, generally the largest the largest party in the PLO, which is a Palestinian liberation organization, tends to be more moderate. Uh, of course, they famously produced Yasser Arafat, who was uh, the Palestinian who supported peace talks with Israel, um, and especially with... Uh, Yitzhak Rabin, 
Uh, and the Palestinians didn't like that. So, well, some Palestinians didn't like that. Not, not all Palestinians. Although, many Palestinians didn't support the Oslo Accords, to be very clear. But some very extremist Palestinians uh, did not like that. And, you know, they assassinated Arafat. Although, to be clear, Israel's not off the hook here. Um, the uh, Israeli far-right extremists assassinated uh, Yitzhak Rabin, which was problematic because after Rabin, you got uh, right-wing, some of them far-right-wing, uh, political parties coming to power. Um, the most famous, of course, being Benjamin Netanyahu, who actually came into Israeli politics not as a far-right uh, extremist lunatic, but he did leave as a far-right extremist lunatic, at least hoping that he leaves in 2021. Uh, so Hamas and Fatah had a sort of major falling out in 2007, uh, and it sort of led to, well, not in 2007, I think it was in 2004, excuse me, uh, but you had a lot of different issues, including the Hamas-Fatah war that sort of tore apart Palestine for a while. Uh, Hamas gets much more of its support during wartime because Hamas is the only one with rockets firing them at Israel. And to be very clear, Hamas does fire rockets at Israel, and Hamas does use that uh, in terms of uh, war programming. And yes, they do not fire necessarily at military installations in, in Israel. Uh, they generally tend to fire at civilian installations in Israel, which is, by the way, a war crime. Um, and also, something else important to note is that many people on the left realize this. It just tends to be the fact that people who are... I don't really want to get into that, but some people do not recognize this on the left, but it tends to be something that leftist politicians like Elon Omar or uh, AOC or uh, I don't actually know about Rashida Tlaib, but I, I know that Elon Omar, for instance, mentioned that Hamas's rockets were a war crime, and that is true, uh, but it tends to be that there is an undue burden placed on uh, on on Israel in the sense that um, many people don't notice when Israel does it, but notice only when Hamas does it because Hamas is legally a terrorist organization. Regardless, I'm not going to get into that politics. Uh, and rather, I would instead get, get into um, why parties on the Israeli right benefit from this war, especially Benjamin Netanyahu and Likud. Uh, it's because, well, number one, there's two, there are two parties in Israel. Um, sorry, that is not true at all. There are two major blocks in Israel, one on the left and one on the right. But the left block and the right block are extremely, extremely fractious. Uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu, who even though is on the right and in fact moved even further right in order to uh, sort of shore up his left flank, uh, his right flank, excuse me. He shifts to the right. He begins to support settlements, uh, which is something that many Israeli, even administrations, didn't support. He sort of moved the right to settle uh, into the forefront of the conversation. He even moves parts of the center, like Kadima, to the right in terms of accepting settlements. Now, Netanyahu, extremely important, is sort of not liked in Israel anymore. And the reason why is because he's kind of extremely corrupt and not even hiding it. So Netanyahu has not won a single election in a while. And by the way, there were five elections in the past three years, I think. Uh, that, that seems like a lot, but I'm pretty sure it's actually more and less time. Uh, like more elections in less time. Actually, I think it is five elections, but I think it might be in two years rather than three years. So Netanyahu has sort of so avoided leaving office because there continue to be elections. And that's because Israel has a provision. I don't know whether it's in their basic laws, which is our constitution, but in Israel, um, and, or, or, or like it's just a law generally. But basically the idea is that Israeli elections, someone needs to get an outright majority or a form of coalition that gets an outright majority, but no side has actually done that. Even the anti-Netanyahu side has not gotten parts of the Netanyahu coalition to join up with them, which is interesting to say the least. And 
the other thing is that the anti Netanyahu coalition has not really tried to reach out to the Israeli Arabs who have certain demands, I think like leaving settlements. There are, there are a lot of different demands that the Israeli Arabs have that the anti Netanyahu coalition just can't meet in the sense that like meeting them would be political suicide in Israel. So, uh, there, there's just a lot of different issues that affect both sides. And as a result, Netanyahu, who wants to keep power, uh, and generally it tends to be that there's rally around the flag moments whenever there is a war, uh, and Netanyahu wants to take control of that and take advantage of that in order to uh, form a coalition, at least a war coalition, and keep himself in power. The other thing is that the ceasefire that just was announced um, was not really beneficial for either side, but I could also see it being beneficial for both sides. Of course, people stopped dying, which is important, but we would rather look at the politics rather than the, rather than the morality. So in the, in the, on the politics side, Israelis don't like their own people dying, which is important. And, and I say this because, uh, I say this because the IDF was saying that they would invade Gaza, but they were never going to do that. And the reason why is because the IDF, when they invaded Gaza, uh, the political party in charge had a lot of different, um, issues to deal with regarding that invasion. Because whenever a country invades another country, you generally are able to look at the invasion and criticize it in many different ways. Uh, there are a variety of different uh, like a variety of different case studies about this. I my mind immediately jumped to the Crimean War because I'm crazy and think about British politics all the time. But the Crimean War in the 1850s is a good example of that when the, when the British invaded uh, Russia in Crimea, of course, and um, and then eventually like the Aberdeen Ministry collapsed. That's kind of a crazy example. Actually, I should bring it to the U.S. because Bush did that with Iraq. Uh, he invaded Iraq. It went kind of well, and then it went kind of not well, and then it went really badly. So the Bush invasion of Iraq sort of led to a destruction of the Republican Party, not only in 2006, but even in 2008. So uh, also there was um, the 2014 Gaza war and the 2000 Gaza war. Uh, well, it wasn't a Gaza war, it was an intifada. But these several different wars that um, led to rejections of the Israeli government in charge. Now, Netanyahu was in charge of it in 2014, so that wasn't really that great of an example, but generally it tends to be that whenever there's a ground invasion and, you know, kids start dying, um, at least Israeli kids start dying, then Israel starts realizing that there are some problems. Now, the other issue is that missiles uh, are bad, and especially they tend to commit war crimes, especially when the people behind them are not very interested in lowering civilian casualties. Uh, so... Israel very famously shot a rocket at the AP building, and that was very, very bad because the media, which tends to support Israel, eventually decided to realize that Israel was not maybe that great, and they were firing rockets at, you know, the AP building, which is bad, not only for their, you know, bottom line, uh, which is getting reporting, and that's always important, but also for, like, war crimes and the rule of law, which, you know, these media corporations love drooling over this rule of law thing. Now... Of course, Palestinian children who are dying, that's another big issue, but that tended not to be the case for the media. So the media tended to uh, sort of take Israel's side until they really couldn't. And Israel had a bunch of different issues uh, regarding treatment of Palestinians, especially in the West Bank, where you begin to see a sort of strike of Palestinian people who are kind of tired of Israel for good reason. And basically, that is... A lot of the discussion that is coming around about Israel and Palestine, you're beginning to see a ceasefire. And I want to briefly discuss how Joe Biden, which we really need to discuss Joe Biden. Uh, of course, we haven't discussed him in two months. But how Joe Biden has played into this sort of very fractious conflict in terms of Israel and Palestine. 
So as you are probably aware, you can follow me on Twitter at RioRPerez. You can follow me on Instagram at RioRaymondPerez, and I will try to answer your questions if you send them to me via DM. Now, note, I do post interesting things on my Twitter and Instagram, so follow me for that. Uh, that's always good. Uh, and make sure to subscribe to me on YouTube at In Progress with Raymond Perez. If you look that up, that should be the first uh, thing that pops up. And you can always subscribe to me on YouTube. Uh, I have a different platform basically for everything I do. So um, I will probably post something about that on my Instagram and you can find it there. Okay, so let's finally discuss Joe Biden and his extreme, extreme relationship with Israel. So basically, I wanted to very quickly compare two presidents on Israel-Palestine and they're actually not the two presidents you think they are. They are not Donald Trump and Joe Biden, as you probably expect me to. Uh, as I'm sure you know, Donald Trump is kind of a crazy pro-Israel person, extremely crazy in, the sen in that sense. Uh, he's extremely pro-Israel. He supports moving the embassy to Jerusalem. In fact, he did that, uh, although the way he did that is kind of weird because he didn't really do it, but he did it kind of. It's extremely interesting and weird, and you need to look into that yourself because that's crazy. Uh, he also was like, really weird friends with Netanyahu. Netanyahu was tweeting Wall's work during that government shutdown because Netanyahu is an idiot, basically. And um, he was sort of extremely pro-Israel in, in a very true sense. And there's not even a possibility of conflating Trump and Biden on the Israel question. Uh, I said that. That's not a great way to phrase it. But um, on the question of Israel's relationship with the United States. So that is... A big discussion to have, but it's not one that I'm going to have now because it's so obvious what the answer is. Biden is more pro-Palestine in the sense that he's, you know, not shockingly and almost cartoonishly pro-Israel. Uh, but Trump is, of course, a cartoon, a walking cartoon in basically every sense, uh, other than, of course, you know, his shocking and depraved crimes. But outside of that, uh, Joe Biden actually should be compared to probably a progressive president as well, whose name is Barack Obama. Uh, Barack Obama was pro-Israel, right? But he wasn't actually extremely pro-Israel in the sense that, uh, a lot of other, um, a, a lot of other Democrats were more pro-Israel than Barack Obama. Uh, and Barack Obama was being kind of pulled right on the question of Israel. Although, of course, Barack Obama supported Israel in the sense that, uh, all Democrats basically at the time did. Uh, that's not necessarily true today because you're beginning to see a bigger focus on the Palestinian plight in the Israel-Palestine conflict. And that plight is especially being stressed by uh, parts of the left, and that left includes uh, Ilan Omar, includes Rashida Tlaib, who I believe is Palestinian-American herself, um, who famously confronted Joe Biden on uh, the steps of... Was it the tarmac? I don't, I don't remember what that's called. But, but, uh, but Joe Biden did talk to, to Rashida Tlaib, or as he would say, Rashid Tlaib, I can't do a Joe Biden impression, so don't expect me to. Now, Rashida Tlaib, uh, who really was um, kind of the face of the Palestinian American, uh, sorry, the Palestinian movement before this crisis, uh, she really is sticking it to Joe Biden now um, in terms of confronting him, even on a kind of an unrelated trip to Detroit. Uh, so Joe Biden now has pressure from the left, especially from, as I mentioned, Omar uh, uh, Tlaib, Presley. Oh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Mark Pocan, um, I think Ro Khanna, a bunch of these different progressive legislators are beginning to put pressure on Joe Biden. And to be very clear, I normally try to do this, but I mentioned like a bunch of names and I like giving what state they're from. So um, who did I mention? Omar's from Minnesota. Uh, Tlaib is from Michigan. Ocasio-Cortez, of course, from New York. Uh, Presley from Massachusetts. And Ro Khanna from California. 
I feel like I mentioned someone else. Uh, but I can't remember who I mentioned because my brain doesn't work like that. Okay, regardless, uh, Joe Biden is now facing a lot of pressure from um, from people on the left. Someone who he's very clearly not facing pressure from is uh, a, uh, is Andrew Yang, who is running for mayor of New York City. Now, Andrew Yang had a little, let's say, misstep on the Israel-Palestine issue. If you look just at Twitter, uh, perhaps those num- th- that tweet didn't affect his poll numbers that much, as much as the debate did. Uh, and you're beginning to see some movement against Andrew Yang in the polls. I don't really believe that has to do with Israel-Palestine because, you know, that's not necessarily a big deal for New York voters, uh, especially because in that poll, it specifically said that, like, homelessness was a bigger issue. And the fact that Yang probably supports police is a much bigger issue than uh, than Yang opposing um, the Israel-Palestine or, or than Yang, like, tepidly supporting Israel, which is, like, like he really did only do it tepidly. Uh, but this idea sort of began propagating around Twitter that hashtag Yang supports genocide, which is almost a laughable claim in itself. But uh, but this this idea um, began to propagate on Twitter, as I mentioned, and began to trend on Twitter, which, of course, whenever that happens, Twitter, the Twitterati, I call them, uh, which I, I don't call them that, but some people do. Uh, the, the Twitterati began to believe that this was the end of the Yang campaign, that Yang literally could not recover, uh, forgetting that, you know, Yang losing meant that Eric Adams, who was a stop-and-frisk Democrat, uh, which is almost a weird thing to say in 2021, although, to be very clear, uh, stop-and-frisk has really been, I think it's been more unpopular among white Democrats than black Democrats. I feel like that's true, because it's almost true for every racial issue. Uh, but basically, um, Eric Adams has begun to surpass Yang in polling. Uh, Eric Adams, by the way, also supports Israel, so uh, it's it's kind of silly to claim that him, that Yang going down is it means that Adams went up. Uh, so this sort of hashtag don't rank Yang hashtag has been trending, which is kind of funny because the left saying hashtag don't rank Yang as if like that's better than uh, than hashtag don't rank Adams or something. It, it's sort of entirely silly. Uh, and it, it sort of shows that much of the left is more concerned with um, with 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 not not with policy, but rather with posturing, and I think that that's almost silly because the left tries to claim that they're not pro-posturing. But as I've said, as as someone who considers himself progressive, uh, I tend to oppose um, both this weird discussion of posturing on the left, but also this weird rejection of posturing, which is kind of interesting, and I'll probably get into that at a later point in time uh, when we're not five minutes out from ending. Uh, regardless, Yang has had a sort of ro- rocky uh, recent, I don't know, maybe a few weeks, maybe even few months, if you really want to talk about it that way, because Yang used to be at the very top of New York polling, and then at some point, Adams begins to, like, take, partially take uh, uh, the lead, and then um, even, even like, the Scott Stringer, Scott Stringer is a progressive, by the way, uh, he's, a, he's a progressive in New York, I forget what he did, I know Adams was Brooklyn president, was Brooklyn borough president, but I don't know what Scott Stringer did. Uh, Scott Stringer, who was the progressive candidate, in the mayor's race, like even got a sexual assault allegation, and uh, and Yang is still losing to him, or Yang is still bleeding support to him. To be very clear, Yang is still leading Stringer, but he's bleeding support to him, which is important. Uh, basically, there are just there's just so much that is happening in this New York mayor's race that you can't really blame one movement on one tweet. Uh, that would be very shocking if it was only one tweet that like ended the Yang campaign, but you can't really say that for literally anything, so I don't know why you would say that for the Yang campaign. Anyway, regardless, the important point to note here is that Yang is beginning to lose the number one spot that he had in the beginning of the mayor's race, 
And it seems more and more likely that Eric Adams could pull a surprise victory on Andrew Yang, who used to be considered the frontrunner, uh, regardless of much polling, actually. So uh, Yang was the frontrunner. He actually did place pretty well in polling, although that polling was kind of scant. And, uh, and Yang is now beginning to lose a bit more steam as he's becoming a little bit more unpopular, becoming a little bit more polarizing, and eventually beginning to see how New York politics is really played as compared to national politics. Uh, and the New York media, by the way, does not like Andrew Yang for probably a good reason in the sense that, like, Andrew Yang is not necessarily that polished. Uh, he's not necessarily that uh, policy-focused um, in the sense that... So when I say he's not policy-focused, I mean he's not city policy-focused in the sense that, like, most of his policies tend to be pretty half-baked in a really disappointing sense. Uh, in the, because, well, actually, a lot of his national policies, frankly, were half-baked. He wanted to sunset laws after, like... A few years, which is really crazy. But outside of that, um, you were beginning to see a lot of different issues come with Andrew Yang and his policies when he like sort of shrank them to fit the city. So regardless, you're beginning to see a move against Andrew Yang. And to some, that's good. To me, as someone who really doesn't care about New York politics because I don't live there, uh, I don't particularly have a say either way. Um, if you were to press me on who I would vote for, uh, of the top three candidates, I would probably still vote for Yang in the sense that um, I, th- I think that Yang has, a, has an interesting set of policies and he has an interesting set of policy proposals. And also in the sense that like Eric Adams is, you know, not the greatest and Yang is probably better than him in the sense that he doesn't support stop and frisk. Uh, there are other candidates, um, Diane Morales, who is kind of the, the candidate of like people on Twitter, frankly, um, is, uh, is, is kind of a good candidate, I would say. Um, Maya Wiley has uh, some interesting perks to her, although she's associated with de Blasio, which is not great. Um, and Gutstringers is okay in the sense that, like, he's inoffensive, other than, you know, the sexual assault allegation, which is problematic. But, uh, but of course, you have to look at that, how you look at it. And I'm not particularly sure about the Stringer allegation because I haven't really looked into it. Because uh, that's not really my, my purview. I don't care about New York politics other than what's happening with Andrew Yang, who's a national figure. Uh, so... Also, the also another important thing is that like New York politicians become national figures. Uh, this is really interesting because I can actually go over the hour because this is not being um, streamed. Okay, and th- there's no like schedule set schedule for me, so I can actually go over the hour. Uh, but regardless, I will try to end this here and say a few important things as we close out. The Palestinian Medical Relief Society, by the way, is a group that can use your help in this time. Uh, Israel and Palestine have, of course, had a storied conflict, and as I'm sure you're aware, more Palestinians die than Israelis, and of course, that means that there's a much larger issue when it comes to Palestinian deaths, in the sense that Palestine has a, let's say, not very developed healthcare system. I was put onto this by a friend, I will not, of course, give her name out because I don't know if she would be fine with that. There is, of course, a donation link at pmrs.ps, and if you'd like to donate, you can, pmrs.ps. And uh, we will see you next week. I will actually give a formal conclusion after this. You can find me on Instagram at Real Raymond Perez, on Twitter at Real R Perez for more political content. You can watch us every Friday at 5 p.m., perhaps earlier, depending on when I finish this. I will be there next week if you will. And remember that the change we need to see is always in progress. Thank you for watching.